0: Hi. Hello, welcome to Knock Knock High with the Glockamfleckens. I am Will Flannery, also known as Dr. Glockamflecken.
1: I am Kristen Flannery, also known as Lady Glockamflecken.
0: And what a show do we we have for you uh, Mm. today. We're talking uh, with Dr. Mark Lewis, someone that we know um, quite well, and we'll talk about that in a second. But first, uh, we got some mail yesterday. Mm -hmm. We've been getting some bail because we are preparing for a,
1: a very the long biggest
0: flight. trip that we've ever taken as a family we are going
1: uh, as a person i think for me that's
0: me too yeah we're yeah. going to australia yeah we are spending some time in, in sydney and of uh, adelaide and I, i'm going to i'm speaking at a conference there but we're turning it into a family, a family vacation. vacation so we get this big box in the mail and um i open it or kristen opens it i look in and and i'm kind of confused and i ask her what is this and she says oh those are my neck pillows like multiple mm-hmm. and so what you had decided to do was in order to try to sleep on the 17 18 hour flight we have mm-hmm. to take yeah um, gotta make
1: sure i have a good neck you pillow. want to do
0: experience with the different yes types of neck pillows correct
1: okay so for context i have to back up first of all for myself and for our younger daughter, um, if we are awake for too long, like, you know, we're talking, it's been, this is another reason I could never have become a doctor because <laughs> if it's at like our, you know,
0: 18, 19, 18, 20.
1: right. If, it, if it's coming on 24 hours of, of awakeness, uh, we will just, um, throw up.
0: They just will, uncontrollably. I've uh, seen it happen. Mm-hmm. It, I would not say uncontrollably. No, but I just
1: mean like we can't control how this like it's it, just happen. going to happen.
0: So anyway, so yes, yes. So, they, so they have this weird like. I don't know if
1: you know what that is out thing, there. Some somebody listening or watching, please do tell me, vomit because <laughs> I would like to fix
0: so, it. So um, anyway, in order so to we have this, this, so
1: it's very important, yes, that we get some sleep on the plane. Otherwise, we will both be vomiting. Over the okay. Pacific Ocean in a tube that we can't escape from. So All right,
0: we understand the implications of this. So <laughs> what have you done to try to prevent so, this? Okay,
1: so that's that's background number one. Background number two is that I have, you know, some joint issues uh, due to my hypermobility. And so, you know, I've had a neck surgery. I've had to have a cervical disc replacement. I have a lot of just chronic pain up and down my spine, right? And my neck is a, a common offender. So I also need, not only do I need something that's comfortable enough to sleep, I need something that's not going to debilitate me so you, you need know, something ergonomic. I need something that's very so, supportive so in a specific she, way.
0: So just to, to fast forward here, the things that she ordered are hilarious.
1: Yeah. So I got, I don't know, six or eight. I Googled to see like what what are the best ones. And I couldn't decide just from reading on the internet. So I had to try them. So I just got all of them and I figured I can try them all out and then just return the ones I don't want to so keep. So one of
0: them is just your typical like neck pillow. But another one is, is this, um, large, of what shape is it? I, I don't even know. O- oval? It, oval shape thing that goes over her head and, and then she leans on, it's like designed to like lay or like tray table on sleeping. the tray table. Yeah. But what you look like is... It's called The th- Ostrich. Okay, it's called The Ostrich, but you look like one of the zombies from The Last of Us. <laughs> uh, if you've seen that show, The Clickers, like that's what she looks like. Um, or even like from Pan's Labyrinth, that, oh, mm-hmm. that's a good one, where the guy with the the eyeballs on his hands. Mm-hmm.
1: That guy freaked me out. Yeah, that's what you look like, like with the movie. ostrich on yeah, your head. Yeah, because it like goes over your head as an oval and then up at the up at the top, on either side of your head, it's got holes because it's meant like remember you're you're leaning over a tray table, so your forehead's on the tray table, and then your hand is in these holes right above your both of your hands are so in the holes I above your head, so that you have somewhere to put your arms.
0: I support whatever it is you need to do to avoid <laughs> vomiting on our trip. So uh, whatever, however much money you feel like you need to spend investigating well, these I just options,
1: you got to be able to. Sometimes you just have to try it out. So All yeah. Right. Well, it's gonna do it. Well, I'll report back.
0: Perfect. Yeah, let's. I'm sure everyone's gonna be <laughs> just waiting on pins and needles for that. All right, let's get to our guest. We have Dr. Mark Lewis, who is a medical oncologist, who is the director of gastrointestinal oncology at Intermountain Health, and chair of digital engagement for National Cancer Research Groups. And we actually just interacted with uh we met mark in person for the first time a couple weeks ago
1: yes yeah we've known him from twitter for a few years uh but he was in town for a conference and so we met up for dinner and um what we had a lovely dinner and good conversation. We went out for ice cream afterward. We brought our kids with us, and it was just this really, really good time. Um, and I think that it speaks to the character of Dr. Lewis. Um, that when we left on our way home, and this is well past the kids' bedtime at this point, right. Well, on our way home, normally our eight-year-old would be complaining about something or another because she's eight, that's what they do. But what she did after the lovely evening that we had is she just sighed really contentedly from the back seat, and went, I love you guys. And that was just to me, that is the epitome of what an experience with Mark Lewis is like. So uh, we go into in the episode a little more about how we know each other, but that is the kind of person that he is and the kind of physician that he is. So really, really good episode today.
0: Maybe also had a little bit something to do with ice cream.
1: Could have. I'm just Could saying, I'm just
0: throwing that out there, you know, <laughs> but uh, yeah, certainly... The medical medical oncologist guest was helped, you know, our eight year old help, (laughs) you know, enjoy the enjoy the evening, uh, but uh, yeah, had a great time. So let's get to it. All right, here is Dr. Mark Lewis. Mark Lewis, Dr. Lewis, thank you so much. I feel it's so formal calling you Dr. Lewis. I can't do it. I'm just going to call you Mark. Because we've, uh, we've interacted a handful of times and um, our families know each other. And, yes. and so our, our first question I have for you, are you a white coat guy?
1: <laughs> yeah. you know, there's there's different schools of
0: thought here. Cause like some doctors be like, you know, as soon as they're done with training or med school, you are like, ditch the white coat. Never again. Mm-hmm. Some people are very attached to their white coat. There's no wrong answer. I'm just curious what your philosophy is.
2: I'll tell you my philosophy will is it, and thank you by the way, for it's lovely to see you guys, and this is just a treat to be here. It, it helps me project, I, I mean this quite seriously, actually. it helps me project some sense of gravitas. Mm-hmm. Um, because as we'll talk about, like what I do for a living is um, serious in its implications. And I know I still look young and you know maybe give off the impression that I haven't done this long enough. Um, and so I know it sounds almost like a prop, but to set the stage without coming across as intimidating, I do want to come across as semi-competent. Sure. And yeah. I'm talking to you guys uh, in um, in a clinic day, uh, yeah. and, and it's, this is absolutely delightful sort of break um, from some of the things <laughs> I've been addressing. But, but that's why I wear the white coat. And, and the other thing that's helped, if I'm honest, Will, is as I've gotten older, I'm getting visibly grayer. And literally it's been years since a patient asked me how old I am. And I take that actually with a tiny bit of um, sort of satisfaction. One of my colleagues and I, we call it gravitas, meaning that the gray hair gives you just a tiny bit of seniority and then people are more likely to listen to you. But in all seriousness, it all comes back to establishing trust with the patient, um, making sure they feel comfortable with me. Cause if you don't have that rapport and I'm going to be giving you chemo and I know we're jumping right into the meat of the conversation, you know, it's going to be a very difficult sort of therapeutic alliance. So that's that's yeah. the real reason. It's been a
1: while since anyone asked you about how old well you used yeah. to get those comments. Well,
0: I, I did. I, I no, I did. I got I got those comments a lot, yeah. and then I had a cardiac arrest, it
2: and then kind of I aged developed
0: I developed developed a lot of gray hair after that, and all of a sudden I I wasn't uh, being asked. <laughs> I was nice. I was more being asked. Are you okay? <laughs> <laughs> Are you yeah
2: i was literally at a restaurant uh this weekend and they had a sign on the wall and it said if you're under 30 uh prepare to be carded and i was sitting there kind of waiting to see if they would ask <laughs> nothing so they're like all right old man come yeah. on through so yeah we're past that we're past
0: that well i'm glad you could uh, join us on uh clinic day you yeah. certainly look like you've just been in clinic uh, with your wearing a stethoscope and your white coat and That's um true. and so Yes, as we've alluded to already, you you are an oncologist yeah. and uh, you uh, are the director of gastrointestinal oncology. That's right. And also this you have this other title, the chair of digital engagement for national cancer research groups. Yeah, what is that? I'm not sure what that is. What <laughs> okay. cuz it sounds fancy.
2: Duh. Well, yes, yeah, so let me let me disabuse you of that notion. Uh well, so <laughs> I'll, I'll say you know how Google has this autocomplete feature, right? So allegedly we're in the era of search engine optimization but if you go to google and you start typing in a phrase it'll finish it'll finish mm-hmm. your search string right so a couple of years ago i was really curious how does the general public perceive what i do and so i put in the phrase oncologists are and frankly i was enlightened but horrified by the results it said literally <laughs> and i can send you i have a screenshot of this it says oncologists are murderers Oh, mm. right. Oh. Yeah. So we have a little bit of a PR problem right off the Sure. Um, that's right. Oncologists are poisoners, and I can kind of see where they, they came, eh. okay. came okay. in there. I
1: mean, in a literal sense, sure. Yeah. Yeah.
2: yeah. Uh, and thank you.
1: Yeah, that's, that's, that's <laughs>
2: fair. And then, you know, <laughs> I, I think oncologists are, are criminals. It, it, it went on. Oh, my gosh. And, wow. And I thought, gosh, we have a lot of work to do to rehabilitate our, our image. And so, well, t- to answer your question, you know, semi-seriously, what digital engagement means. Is reestablishing at least a fraction of the public trust. And mm. there's actually really good research, and you know, you and I have actually both had cancer. There's really good research that, you know, when someone's first diagnosed, and if they have, you know, the luxury of internet access, ninety seven percent of people, and this is no surprise, will look up their diagnosis uh, on the internet. And ninety four percent of them will use Google. And so to me, it's actually very relevant uh, what search results are going to be yielded if you're doing these sort of broad-based investigations. So what we are looking to do with digital engagement is humanize oncologists. I'll come back to thanking you for your role in all this, but also specifically making people aware that clinical trials are not about making people guinea pigs. Uh, That's one term I really want to try to jettison. It's more about, Mm -hmm. we know that what we're doing right now is not good enough. How do we make it better? In short of sheer blind luck, the only way we make it better is by asking really thoughtful research questions. And the final piece of the puzzle is, you know, we respect ethics. We respect autonomy. If you're going to enroll in a trial, back to actually what we were saying in the beginning, you better trust the clinicians yeah. and the scientists who are taking care of you. This is a huge uh, sort of self-sacrifice that you're making. Again, usually you're hoping to get something back, but you better yeah. think of oncologists as something a lot more than just as murderers, you know? So, right. It's a very long answer to your question, but one of the reasons I'm the chair of digital engagement and specifically why my Twitter activity sometimes comes across as looking a little silly or frivolous is I am trying to soften sort of our our public persona and make us feel, and I hope this is authentic, come across as as more uh,
0: authentic and uh, and approachable. Well, you're talking to the king of frivolous uh, content, (laughs) so... Don't even. Although I'm sorry to tell you this, there. but
1: usually Mark's Twitter feed makes me laugh more than yours I, I does. Don't, I
0: don't because you've heard all, <laughs> all my jokes a thousand it's times. It's been so many that, years that now. Sense.
2: I'll let you talk to my wife, and you get completely the same answer. So yes, <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, so it's it's actually it's surprising to me hearing about this PR problem that oncologists have because from my perspective as a physician, like. It's, it's like oncologists have some of the hardest jobs in medicine because it's such a growing field. So quickly, you have all these new therapeutics like all the time that are coming out. It just seems like a very challenging field. You have to have a lot of empathy. And so it's surprising to me that maybe the general public has a, a negative you know, image of an oncologist.
2: I mean, that's really very kind of you to say, um, Will. And I, I think the difference is, one, you're inside healthcare. Yeah. Two is you and, I guess, not really that indirectly, Kristen have have benefited hopefully from an oncologist taking mm-hmm. care of you. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, she was the one that had to bring your heart back. There wasn't an oncologist <laughs> present when right. you uh, were <laughs> yeah. at home. But um, But I think it does take some sort of personal brush with the disease, whether it's you or your family member, actually to kind of see what it is that we do. And one of the things we can discuss is, Oncology is actually a lot more than chemo. Thankfully, it's becoming a lot more than chemo. Mm -hmm. Um, But for many years, it's fair to say that, you know, if you were to describe my work in maybe two words, you could say, you know, chemo doctor. Mm -hmm. And I think what actually happened with our negative image is I think we, the people, the doctors, got conflated with the nasty, nasty toxicity of our drugs. And and full disclosure, like, I I know chemo is horrible. No one ever wants chemo. I don't want Mm -hmm. to give chemo. In fact, you know part of my job is to convince people when they need chemotherapy and then when they do need it to try to make it as tolerable as possible so I think you're you're very kind to say that. I think that's where some of this reputational trouble came from and then, as I was also alluding, if we're not extremely careful in how we describe clinical trials, we will come across as mad scientists who are sort of you know playing fast and loose with people's lives and that's mm-hmm. the farthest thing from what we're actually
0: doing. How do you come up? How, how do you have that conversation? That's, that's interesting to me just because it could, it, it, I understand it would be, it seems like it'd be very easy to, to, to mess portray it up. <laughs> that as experimental. <laughs> yeah. Right. And that's a scary word for yeah. people, it's especially when you're talking about you know, cancer.
2: Yeah. I, I think the way I put it is that the only way forward is sort of rational, um, and, and, and careful experimental design, because again, I'm lucky enough. I've, I've had, as we discussed a relatively short, uh, mid-length career at this point, and I've seen it change so much. Like literally I had a great fellowship a great training. I kid you not. If I practiced exactly the way I was trained now, and I've been out more than 10 years, it would be malpractice. That's how much it's changed. Wow. And I think what we've all signed up for on our side of the table is lifelong learning. We basically said, listen, nobody wants to be practicing oncology the way it was you know, 20, 30 years ago, heck, even five years ago. We want to be better than that. However, the only way to get better is essentially crowdsourcing our knowledge. And, and it's tough because you know, some patients have to go first. It's like, <laughs> I, right. I, we can get into this too. When I was having my pancreas surgery, I was meeting my surgeon you know, or surgeons the week beforehand. And one of them was his first operation here at my institution. I remember thinking, huh, it's kind of an interesting situation to be in where I know that I am for one of a better phrase, my you know my surgeon's first, right? no one ever wants to really be first right on the other hand, we know that sort of again pioneering is necessary because the status quo is not nearly uh, good enough. so the way I couch it is I talk about the standard of care, I say, listen, the standard of care, what we know now can get us this far, but you know I'm honest with them that I, I think we are still in if not the infancy of this field, it's adolescence, and the only way to fully mature mm-hmm. is. Your trials. So if you just take a little bit of time and try to, again, dissuade them of this notion that, you know, trials mean that you are totally guessing and it's completely improvisational, um, then, then they tend to come around. And also, if you can demonstrate the potential value for that person, that tends to be mm. very powerful. I, I've actually taken care of some complete altruists, people who say, listen, Dr. Lewis, I realize that the odds of me benefiting here are slim to none. I still want to do it. Because I want to make it better yeah. for the people that come after me. And that's the kind of selflessness that you see all the time in this wow. field. And yeah. it's just so yeah. touching. You know, like who who does that? And the answer is patients with cancer do that. They are yeah. um, among the most noble people I've ever met.
1: There is something about the experience of having cancer that just, and you two know it better than I do um, <laughs> as former cancer patients yourself, but the, it really adjusts your perspective on life and on what you want. To do with your time and with your own life, so that that doesn't surprise me at all. I mean, it's unfortunate, but it's it's not yeah. surprising.
2: There, there's an intentionality to it, Kristen, and I think you guys, or I guess I'll include myself in our group, like at you know, relatively young ages, um, mm-hmm. you know, we've had to confront mortality. And um, my father actually had a great quote about this. So um, he was a he was a minister, he was a theologian, and he was referencing a psalm where it talks about you know the average life expectancy being three score years and ten. And he said, you know what? Our life uh, expectancy, that's not a guarantee. That's an average. And in any bell curve distribution, some people will fall on the long part, the desirable part, and some people will be on the very abbreviated and undesirable short part. And he was actually tragically um, the latter. So he wrote when he was in his early to mid 40s, he said, I'm having a midlife crisis with his cancer it may prove closer to its end than its middle. And he was absolutely right. And so I think from a very early age, I realized, and then it was really you know brought upon me when I had my cancer. Boy, you know, there are no guarantees here. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I won't even pretend to understand what you guys went through with the sort of hyper-acute, you know, shock of your cardiac mm-hmm. arrest. Well, and and Kristen, again, kudos to you for your remarkable resuscitation efforts. But you know, I think it just shakes you. And this is stuff people yeah. don't want to talk mm-hmm. about. Like denial is so powerful. Like you want to believe especially when you're young, that you have something approaching immortality. Mm -hmm. And I think the other thing that that really changes your perspective is when you have a parent that gets ill, Um, you know, I think when we're young, it's it's actually comforting, almost necessary to imagine that your parents are going to live, if not forever, for a very, very long time. Mm -hmm. And it's like the scales fall from your eyes when you realize that, yes, they're they're human um, in in every sense of the word, but also that they are... um, not just fallible, but they are, they're mortal, they're vulnerable. And I think that that's a change in perspective that you get, either again, having a serious illness yourself or witnessing a loved one go through it. And again, from a very young age, I saw my dad go through it. I saw my mom support mm-hmm. him. And Kristen, we can certainly talk about caregivers and the vital role you play. But I think that's the difference. I think once you're confronted with your own mortality, it quickly moves from some abstraction. In like a future Mm -hmm. you problem where you're going to be in a retirement home five decades from now to something like wow this is this is a clear and present danger to me and my family and i have to face it
0: yeah i i you know spent a lot of time processing my mortality and my you know at times tenuous mortality it seems uh, through through humor, through yeah. jokes. Uh, I've, no- and
2: I've noticed, Will, I've noticed. You've yes. noticed, <laughs> if, if yeah. you've noticed
0: that, if you could tell. Uh, but whenever I woke up in the ICU after my cardiac arrest, I um, pretty much immediately started tweeting and talking about it. Uh, Which I was very, uh, I've been very proud of myself for quite a while and then uh, that that I was able to do that. Mm -hmm. Uh, But then I learned that you actually live tweeted through (laughs) your Whipple surgery, which made my accomplishments uh, not not seem quite as impressive.
1: Well, Uh, I feel like there's a caveat coming here. What? Mark, you go ahead. <laughs> well, I think break the, break the, it to him gently.
2: Yes, well, I think the caveat <laughs> might be that the other people were tweeting for me. That may be the most uh-huh. important caveat. But, Chris, I'm glad you're clarifying because if I had it to do you're over You're supposed again, to, like,
0: come on. You're supposed to, like, <laughs> let people think maybe he was able to live-tweet through his <laughs> own surgery. I, I no. mean, come on.
2: Superhuman. But that's what people thought. So I, the, the biggest mistake I made, and, and I have a wonderful social media team here, and I'm happy to tell you, like, how it all went behind the scenes. But basically, I gave them control of my Twitter account. It may be like the one time in my life I've ceded control of that to someone else. And I had friends around the country who were using this to follow my surgery. So again, you know, people that care about me, who I know, and they thought, this is true. This is true, Kristen. Some of my non-medical friends thought that they were waking me up from general anesthesia, oh my gosh. sort of like <laughs> letting me tweet. Like comment <laughs> on what was going on, at tweeting, and then putting me back to sleep. And I'm like, listen, I know I have a dopamine addiction. It's not quite that bad. All right. You can (laughs) can put me out and someone else can do it. But no, it was a remarkable experience. And, you know, from my wife, I mean, again, exceptional circumstances, but that's how she got updates on this surgery, which took six and a half hours. The surgeon didn't have to come out of the operating room and be like, hey, listen, this is how your husband's doing. Surreal for her as it was, she was getting live updates just like everyone else. And, you know, 99% of the feedback we got that day was, was wonderful and positive, and I woke oh, up yeah. from surgery. I thought I was hallucinating. I was looking at my phone. There was all these like notifications from people I've never met. There's like three million <laughs> oh my messages yeah. or something. It was it was unbelievable. And um, and, and the fact that you know we did it that way was obviously very exhibitionist. But the reason I did it, if I can be very serious for yeah. a second, so the surgery I had is the only chance of cure for most uh, patients with pancreas cancer. And in my clinic, if I can get my patients sort of a team effort, if I can get them to the point where they are candidates for the surgery I had, that is something to be celebrated. And yet, I cannot tell you how many of them are afraid of the operation. This surgery mm-hmm. is really complicated. The other reason I tweeted it, if I'm honest, is I wanted to see how it was done. Like I wanted to kind of a step-by-step roadmap yeah. because what it does is it completely rearranges the anatomy of your upper gut. And it, so much so, the way I've described it is, the surgeon does to your abdomen what Picasso did to faces. Like takes, yeah. <laughs> takes the parts that you could recognize and then like rearranges them. And then when you're done, you're like, oh yeah, I can kind of see like a, a liver here. Yeah. And maybe you part a of a valve here. You yes, a cubist GI track. <laughs> I have a cubist GI Thank you, Christy. Yes. And so I, I, I'm a big believer that things are less scary if they are illuminated. I think monsters yes. are less frightening in the dark. And I thought if I wake up from this, and I honestly did not do it for cloud. It's the worst reason to possibly oh, have no. a whipple yeah. surgery for cloud. yeah, but <laughs> right. thought, hey, don't don't try this. Much <laughs> easier ways do that. to get cloud. Don't do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, you know, I thought if, if I can convince one person that the Whipple operation is um you know right for them, mm-hmm. then this was all worthwhile. And 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 it has been. It's been a remarkable tool. I use it in clinic. I use it as an example of Not, you know, look at me and I got through it, but this is, these are the steps that you would need to go through. And it really kind of lets the patient have open eyes as to the complexity of the surgery, its recovery. I was also very uh, forthcoming about the fact that it was not a straight linear road Mm -hmm. to recovery. It was actually extremely bumpy. Um, I couldn't eat for five weeks. I was Mm -hmm. fed through an IV. I had a tube in my nose. Um, And again, it opened my eyes to all these. Outcomes of what we do as doctors that aren't that easily captured in labs and scans—the actual patient experience and the caregiver experience. My wife, Kristen, you'll appreciate this. I woke up one morning after my surgery, and it was extremely romantic. I was vomiting bile. Okay. Ooh. Yes. Yeah. And uh, just, just
1: what you want to wake up to in the morning. <laughs> yeah,
2: I know. You know, I bet <laughs> when when you took your vows in sickness and in health, and when I took yep. my vows in sickness and health. Yeah. This is not exactly what you envisioned, right? The bile right. was yeah, not. A, vial.
0: Was, yeah. yeah,
2: but my wife's a doctor, and specifically, she's a pediatrician. And she looked at me and she said, "Listen, you have two options." She said, "Number one, we can go back to the emergency room, and you know what they're going to do, or, or you can let me handle it here at bedside." Mm. And and I, I knew what she meant. So what I needed at that point was I needed a tube reinserted down my nose to my stomach to to drain out all that lovely bile.
0: It's Would you let me do that an, for you? An NG tube. Would, yeah, an NG tube. Do- that's
2: right.
0: Uh, I. That's one of those things, <laughs> along with a Foley catheter, that I'm terrified <laughs> having having put in several of those and yeah. of each of those. I. That's. It's just something I never want done to me, but mm-hmm. I understand that it's necessary. So. so-
2: so, so for both of you, you'll appreciate that. So, well, I agree. I didn't really want it either, but I also really didn't want to go back to the hospital and I, I love and trust my wife.
0: And so, you wanted to stop vomiting bile. So
2: this is true. Yes. That yeah. was kind of priority number one. Um, and so I was like, sure, honey, go right ahead. Uh, blah. <laughs> and, uh, and this is the best part. So we had it in, in, in G2 because of course we do. We're a two physician couple. And um, oh, you had it in your house. Yeah. It was just, you know, just, handy oh, a medicine okay. cabinet. All right. yeah. <laughs> As as got does. A, got a yes. trach in here. Yeah. speculum. All kinds of stuff. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so she's threading this tube, you know, into my nose. Now remember, she's a mm. pediatrician, right? So she's different. She's used to a slightly different caliber of nostril. <laughs> so she's she's, she, she's putting it into my nose and she goes, Mark, your nostrils are huge. <laughs> and uh, you know, at the time, you know, I'm still vomiting the bile, but I've been trying to laugh at the same time and you anyway, know, it's all relative. So bottom line <laughs> oh is my, goodness. my wife saved me. Two went down, and but but again, these are the parts of the. I, I kind of don't like the word journey because it implies this was some sort of voluntary trip we yeah. signed up for. Farthest thing from it, but these are parts of the experience that. And will I know you know this and, until you go through it yourself? Yeah. You can be the best, most well-read doctor in the world. You can know your journals. You can know your textbooks. It's just not the same. That the analogy I use is, it's the difference between a bird and a pilot. Okay, a pilot. Understands lift and yaw and pitch and all these principles of how it's actually working. The bird doesn't have to think because the bird has a visceral understanding mm-hmm. of how their wings work. It's the same with us. Like you and I got a completely separate and arguably more important education being patients ourselves than I would argue mm-hmm. that we got in you know the finest medical school or training program.
0: Absolutely, uh, but I, I'm still kind of stuck on the cell uh, like home MG tube thing. <laughs> <laughs> uh so so but there's got to be suction associated with it.
2: Ah yes. So Did- yeah, so we did we're not we're not so hardcore that we have in wall suction that are yeah, like what on earth did you
0: attach it to? Yes. So my we had friend. we had
2: a bag and we used we used gravity. Did you have gravity. one
1: of those uh, baby things where you what is that called? Do you remember those? Oh the the, the, the
0: the thing that you suck the stuff out of?
1: Yeah, where you have to clear their nose and you stick a tube up there and then there's a oh, filter. Yeah, a bulb.
2: yeah, yeah, yeah. A we bulb. Have a suction bulb as well. Yeah. So, yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah. <laughs>
2: it, it it's amazing. very lovely. And I'm giving you a very <laughs> skewed view of our marriage because honestly it's it's usually lovely and wonderful. Uh, but I, it was. It was such a- I, I
0: think. I mean, of course, it's lovely and wonderful. Right. You, you're able to. You're willing to put in G tubes in in each other's <laughs> noses. Right. I'm This sure. says
1: something about where you're you're starting from. I, I don't know yes.
0: if you could do that for me.
1: I'd do it if I had to. I mean, as with most things, I will do it if I have to. They're I actually kind of hard
0: to. <laughs> to put in i i remember that
2: uh Christian? i think you've earned lifetime credit for successful out of hospital cpr without breaking any ribs i think like you're you're good on a bed i need to stop i need to start
0: giving you more credit that's right absolutely
2: i'm
1: good in a pinch i i mean if i don't have if i'm not in a pinch and i don't have to do it oh i'm not stupid (laughs) i'm not i'm not gonna do it in that case
0: so the other thing i wanted to follow up with though on this this which is an incredible story um is who exactly was tweeting for you? So is obviously, <laughs> huh. it was people in the operating room, yes. I assume, right? Yes. So did you enlist like a bunch of like students and residents and nurses and-
2: Well, th- I'll tell you, there's a little bit of backstory on, right here too, which is that I had had a uh, surgery several years prior during my training. Uh, so I was doing my fellowship at the Mayo Clinic. That's where, you know, as you do, I diagnosed myself with cancer. Yeah. Uh, and I was having my first surgery, which was on my neck. And the, the endocrine surgeon who, who does this part, as much as I love my wife and trust her skills, even I wouldn't trust her to do this part of my, mm-hmm. uh, my care. So this guy was cutting open my neck and, uh, and he said, listen, <laughs> this came across almost like a pickup line. He's like, listen, your, 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 your glands are huge. And I was like, well, thank you.
0: Got great. And he said, <laughs>
2: um, yeah. Great glands. He said, I'd like to make a training video. You can see where the seed is being planted here. He said, I'd like to, I'd like to make a training video for my fellows, because they won't often get to operate on someone that has the parathyroid glands that you do. So anyway, bottom line, Will, this was on VHS Like
0: tape. top 1% of parathyroid glands. Yeah, just, just thrill.
2: Would
1: right. you go out for dinner and a glass of it's
0: wine fantastic. afterward? Yeah,
2: or... Or... Yeah, you know, you know, can <laughs> talk awesome. to me. It's very charming. And, uh, and this video that got produced was absolutely fascinating to me. And, and he gave me a copy like on VHS, and I watched it with like morbid curiosity, and it was just, it was so interesting. And I realized, you know, if this is an educational resource for his fellows, you know, fast forward to where social media is becoming a little bit more mainstream. So maybe there's a way we could do this when I go through my bigger surgery, which is on my pancreas, and it could be more of a public audience. So to answer your question, Will, uh, this is where I have to give due credit to my employer. So my employer is Intermountain Health. They have a very forward-thinking social media department, clearly, because with, about a, week's, with, yeah, with about a week's notice, um, they and my surgeon, and this was the key part, came to an agreement. What well, my surgeon told me, I, I, I'm actually curious to know if this is your mindset when you're in the OR. He said, mm-hmm. listen, I don't care what is going on in the rest of the world. When I am operating, I am laser focused on the field. And, and he said, and I, I needed his permission, clearly. He said, I don't care if you bring in cameramen and people who are going to tweet. It doesn't affect my concentration. I was like, well, that's all I needed to hear. And so it was this whole team of professionals. And, and again, the fact that a major hospital system yeah. was willing to do this yes. actually taught me a lot yeah. about the legitimization of docs using social media. Admittedly, not everyone uses it the way you and I do. right? Um, and and I, I think it's important that you be authentic and have your own identity. But I, I found that quite legitimizing. That was 2017
0: wow that was yeah that's incredible that's cool. and i i totally agree but you know with my surgeries i only have to focus have laser focus for seven minutes at a time <laughs> so you know <laughs> we're talking a six seven hour surgery um, yeah but that's uh, man intense. that's that's incredible yeah. yeah well let's take a quick break and be right back with dr mark lewis Hey Kristen, I have a PSA for you and all of our listeners from our friends from Tarsus. Let's hear it. You know how sometimes you can get red, itchy, irritated eyelids? Okay. Well, do you know what that might be? What? Eyelid mites. No.
1: Yeah, it's no. true.
0: It's a disease. It's called Demodex blepharitis. That's
1: disgusting. It's
0: pretty common.
1: That's horrifying. So if
0: you have itchy, red, irritated eyelids, go talk to your eye doctor. They can take a look at you.
1: Tell you if you're not alone.
0: That's right. But don't freak out. Just get checked out, all right? To find out more, Go to EyelidCheck.com. Again, that's EyelidCheck.com to get more information about Demodex blepharitis. All right, we are back with Dr. Mark Lewis. Uh, Mark, so there's a lot that I don't know about the world of oncology. And uh, uh, one thing I I am aware of, and and mainly it's through my... uh, Research and the videos I've put together regarding the U.S. healthcare system and the the exorbitant costs of everything. And one thing that always comes up whenever I'm trying to like put together all this dialogue between you know Jimothy and and United Healthcare is like the cost of prescription medications, right? And um, it's probably no surprise to anybody listening. Maybe it is, but oncology care has some of the highest, most expensive. Treatments, medications, chemotherapy—that's out there. Um, is this—is this a? Before I, I get into kind of the little the little thing we're gonna do here, <laughs> um, is this a, a source of frustration for oncologists? I imagine it is, uh, because you have to talk about these things with patients and and the very expensive kind of cancer care that that they often have to have.
2: Yeah, it's it's a frustration. Well, and, and more than that, it's a it's a concern because financial toxicity is such a real and even now undercaptured outcome of what we do. Like literally, when I'm sitting down with someone now, not only do I have to think about okay, how do I help this person with their cancer? It's like how do I make this affordable to sustain them? Because it's double jeopardy, right? Like in this country, for the most part, people's healthcare coverage is tied to their jobs. And you get these people yeah. who almost always, through no fault of their own, get diagnosed with a serious illness. And in my clinic, You know, by definition, that's cancer. So now they're worried about keeping their insurance and juggling all the rigors of this diagnosis and its treatment. So I, you, more than anyone else, I think, have have kind of cast in a sharp belief that the true injustices and, and sort of unbelievable um, sort of leaps of logic that the system entails and you basically got this collision between what I call the practice of medicine, which is what I do, and the business of healthcare, which is what you rightly satirize. So, yes, long, long answer your question is there are some medicines in oncology that are so ludicrously expensive <laughs> that it actually gives you pause yeah. before you prescribe them. I'll tell you a true example. When I was in fellowship, there was actually an oncology drug that was so expensive there was a single physician at the Mayo Clinic who was allowed to prescribe it. Like, unless you were this one doctor, (laughs) nobody else could actually click. Yes. So to really kind of put a number on it, a single vial of this drug was $300,000. Oh my gosh. I actually remember thinking, it's good that they've got this system because one errand click of my mouse and I'm going to be doing my indentured servitude here the rest of my life. Like, I'm never (laughs) going to be able to pay this off. So um, that's how ludicrous uh, it's gotten.
0: So, so I want to talk about some of the the cost of some of these. So I went on uh, what I could find good RX for some of them. Yes. uh drugs.com. I don't know, yeah. just googling around, you know, press releases because everybody loves talking about the price of some of these medications. Yeah. Um so I'm going to give you a, a medication and you just have to, I just want you to guess <laughs> in in US dollars um uh, how much how much it costs okay some of these will you know have been around for a while some of these are new okay all right we're gonna start methotrexate ah. for like a 30-day supply how much do you think that is gosh um, wait you have to tell me like what, are, what kind,
1: is, are these all like are these are all chemotherapy okay.
0: medications they a lot of them have multiple uses okay it's not just cancer but they are they are uh, there's different classes of chemotherapy okay. drugs but um this is would be one of them
2: Okay. Okay. Um, can i just ask is this price is right rules like do i get kind of <laughs> yeah.
0: going over or uh no you just i just a uh, ballpark okay just ballpark
2: i actually don't use methotrexate in my practice anymore but i if okay. i had to guess i would think a 30 day supply would probably cost you and i would hope somewhere maybe around a thousand low thousands is what i'm guessing
0: it's actually much cheaper than that oh wow methotrexate is is quite cheap about a 100 bucks oh hundred bucks for everybody. Right. No, there don't. you go. I mean, it's a bit. Be- <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, that is not don't. medical no, 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 advice. <laughs> no. But it's been, it's been around a while. It's been around a while. Yeah, my legal team is telling me that I must strike that from the record. Yeah.
2: Yeah.
0: yeah. <laughs> All right. How about, uh, how about and then some of I'm sorry. Some of these probably you don't, you don't use frequently, but um, tamoxifen.
2: Ah, oh, I actually, I used to use tamoxifen quite a bit um i for a 30-day supply well i think yeah. probably in the hundreds of dollars i would guess
0: yeah about 100 bucks okay. so it's similar to methotrexate is this
2: pre or post insurance no this, this is, is just like this sticker is price? just
0: like you don't have insurance you're okay. going to the pharmacy and some of these are you can get at the pharmacy some are are not available um how about cyclophosphamide oh so uh, this is sh- this is one uh do you still i mean that's like a is that still used oh yeah often. It's still used. okay yeah,
2: yeah. okay um Again, it's a, it's an oldie, but in the right setting, a bit of a goodie. I think we're probably still in the couple hundred dollar range.
0: Yeah, three three hundred, four hundred bucks. Okay. All right. Um, how about here's one that I've been seeing a lot of commercials about. Ah, Key, Keytruda. <laughs> yes. Keytruda. What is Keytruda? Was... What is that used for?
2: Okay, so Keytruda, by another name, is pembrolizumab, and so that suffix. Anytime, so anytime an oncologist sort of vomits syllables at you, the <laughs> most important <laughs> syllable is the last is... one. So the suffix tells you a lot. So that suffix MAB, that means monoclonal antibody. And to give it its fair due, Keytruda is one of these new immunotherapy drugs. And its most famous use or success until very recently has been Jimmy Carter. So President Carter, unfortunately, I think is now in hospice care. But that man has been alive for, I think, six, seven years with a metastatic melanoma that went to his liver and his brain in his 90s. And so this drug, Pembrolizumab or Keytruda, It's an Mm. intravenous immunotherapy that actually teaches your body, hey, this cancer is not you. This is not self. This is something foreign that needs to be attacked like an infection. So long story short, very famous drug. There's no uh, surprise you've seen it on television. Uh, But now we're rapidly escalating costs. And um, (laughs) I think we're probably into the tens of thousands. I I usually uh would tell someone that for a full course of Keytruda, and we can talk about how long that is. I mean, now we're into the hundreds of thousands. So, but a 30 day supply, I think would probably run you, I don't
0: know, 30, 40, something like that. Actually, in the tens of the, so about uh, 15,000 per month. Yeah. The bargain
2: basement. Let's go. There (laughs) you go. Not too bad, right? (laughs) All right.
0: Here's another one. Uh, Garpazizumab. Excuse me? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Garpazizumab.
2: Garpazizumab. Okay. I'm actually not familiar with that one, Will. You're educating me. That's because I made it up. Yes. All right.
0: That's because I made it up. Yeah. Very That's very tricky was, uh,
2: <laughs>
1: changing the uh, rules
0: yes. yeah okay and then at this point in my research i was like look these numbers are getting very big so yeah. let's just look at like the most expensive yes. chemotherapeutic drugs out there can you guess some How of much? the some of the oh just know the names of some of the okay. more expensive the most yes. expensive ones out there
2: Well, the one I was mentioning earlier, uh, albeit not by name, was the one at Mayo that required essentially this uh, unbelievable complicated system of ordering. So it was ecolizumab, is a uh, a monoclonal antibody used in paroxysmal and nocturnal hemoglobinuria, all of which just rolls off the tongue.
0: And that was (laughs) was
2: 300K per vial. Um, So I'm guessing whatever drug you've come up with probably ends in that MAB again. Um, uh-huh. because those are the, there may be an ib in there too, but, uh,
0: <laughs> the Mabs and the Ibs. The
2: Mabs and Ibs, yeah. If you, again, for well, your most videos. most of them are,
0: uh, are also these, you know, brand names, right? Yeah. Because, you yeah. know, yeah, that's, that's what they're marketing them as. And, uh, I have to say the the most expensive one out there, um, is, uh, an ophthalmology medication.
2: Oh. So it's
0: called Kimtrak. Mm. You ever heard of Kimtrak? No, do tell. It's for uveal melanoma.
2: Oh yes. Do you have its generic name by any chance? Uh,
0: you know what? I do not.
2: Okay, I think I think one of my colleagues I'm a bad
0: doctor. No, I don't have not. the generic names. No, no.
2: no you're, you're the last person that anyone would accuse of being in the pocket of pharma. Well, don't you <laughs> wrong. Um, so, uh, no, one of my colleagues who treats uveal yeah. melanoma, I think uses that drug, but they use a, a different uh, designation for yeah. it. I, I've heard it's quite, I mean, that $81,000 per month.
0: Oh. $81,000 per so, month.
2: So, so I think I think your larger point is we have to be incredibly selective in who gets these drugs, and we cannot be putting the entirety or even the majority of the bill on the patient. And, Correct. Maybe the, the, and I realize this is taking your your game and, and putting a very serious spin on it. That's the point. That's the point. It's
0: less less of a game and more <laughs> just a way to complain yeah. about things. No,
2: this is great. You've um, It's the, the Trojan horse of your comedy. You've gotten the message <laughs> in there. Um, it's not sustainable. It's not sustainable on a system level. It is absolutely not sustainable on a patient level. Because short of people that are truly independently wealthy,
1: who can afford
2: yeah. any of this? How right? is anyone
1: supposed to do that? Yeah. Right.
2: It's just it's not possible. Is that
1: how much they cost to make, or is there some ridiculous markup happening? Well, um I'm afraid I already they know certainly want the to wanna, that, but...
0: like recoup the their costs of Making so, it. I think part of the problem was also how rare the disease is, right? Because some true. of these are like orphan drugs.
2: Yes. As a general rule, the rare d- the disease, and, and here's the thing, right? We do walk a very tricky tightrope here. We don't want our pharmaceutical colleagues who are not, by the way, are not universally bad or avaricious. We literally can't do our work without them. I, I, I have to say that quite authentically. Um, but we have to be so thoughtful about uh, who we give this to. And to your point, uh, Kristen, price point. So the company line, literally the company line that you usually hear is if we didn't charge this much, we wouldn't be able to reinvest in in research and development. Okay, Mm -hmm. but then when you actually look at where the money goes, I mean, these are for profit companies for the most part. They have shareholders who they are beholden to. And those people are, you know, respect, expecting, you know, quarterly profits. Right. So. I hate to be so cynical in my answer, but I'm going to tell you my, my honest feeling about this is that I do think there's considerable markup, and I think it's mm-hmm. what is the system willing to pay? And our day of reckoning is coming if it isn't already here. Medical bankruptcy, and this is horrible to say, is the number one reason that Americans go into bankruptcy right now. Uh, it's not home foreclosure, it's not anything else it's it's bills and mm-hmm. and you know will, I know you had your own you know nightmare after your cardiac arrest. My dad, back in the late '80s, early '90s, fought a, like, I think, a thirty thousand dollar bill, um, mm-hmm. and and it, it pained me to watch him. Obviously, I was very young at the time, but I was aware that was it was certainly money we didn't have. It was also energy this man didn't have. Like he didn't need to yeah. be using his his time on this. And he was so nice and like endlessly patient with these people. And I think there was a part of him that you know at, at base wanted to believe they weren't driven by greed but they still wanted their money. And because he hadn't, quote, played by the rules and some prior auth hadn't gone through properly, like the patient ends up on the hook. And I I hate a system that does that, puts the onus of responsibility on on the wrong patient. And the last thing I'll say, well, before we move on is a a lot of cancer drugs these days are pills. And that's particularly Mm. a problem because while it sounds more convenient, you'll appreciate that a lot of prescription plans don't cover pills. I was literally on the phone with an insurer last week and they were like, hey, uh, Dr. Lewis, uh, you prescribed XYZ. Uh, this patient doesn't have pill coverage, but they do have IV coverage. And I said, well, that would be great, except the medicine I want to prescribe literally doesn't have an IV formulation. It's only oral, and the patients didn't have coverage for it. So we're having to you know, go and beg the drug company, essentially, to give
0: it to so, us for free. Yeah.
1: Who cares what form it comes in? Just pay for the drug. like. So I don't. That's so dumb.
0: So you know, and some of these, I'll just you know, so, some of these chemotherapy drugs. I was you know, the numbers are you know, seventy thousand per month, sixty thousand, you know, 20, 30,000. Uh, and what I kept thinking about is just from the perspective of a cancer patient yeah. because you know we we really tout our. Develop our our science and development and R and D that we have in in this country that allows us to have these incredible therapeutics. Yes, that uh, can take a. Uh, we have gene therapy now that you know, and we in ophthalmology and other areas, and so the fact that we have the ability to to treat these these uh, fatal diseases, um, but unfortunately. the the financial cost is so great that makes them sometimes unavailable for people. It's it's really uh, um and they're taking advantage of people in such a
1: vulnerable position because for many people you'll do anything, right? To anything you can do at all to keep living.
2: (laughs) So the the fact that the that my patients starting GoFundMe's for their treatment That's yeah. not the exception. That's nearly the rule. And it breaks my heart every time. Yeah. And and then, Kristen, to your observation, one of the things that hits me like, you know, like a, a, a fist every time I hear it is sometimes I'll present to my patients their treatment options and they will forgo one of these treatments that Will has listed off, not because they have doubts about its effectiveness. But because they don't want to deplete their nest egg, they want to leave something in their inheritance Mm. for their family. And that is just like, oh, that's that's just absolutely heartbreaking, right?
0: To have to make that choice. Right.
2: And usually what will happen is the relatives will pipe up and say, oh, don't worry about that. We'll be okay. But then I feel this is kind of maybe kind of the kernel of your question. I feel like I have to be thinking about that, too. And, Mm -hmm. you know, there's the science part, but there's also the, you know, sort of implementation part. And and the two have to find some sort of harmonious coexistence.
0: All right, let's take uh, one more break and we'll come right back with Mark Lewis. Okay, we are back and ready to look at some of our favorite medical stories that were sent in by the listeners. And we still have uh, Dr. Mark Lewis here uh, with us to react to these stories as well. So we have Trish. Trish uh, says, I am a radiographer in Sydney, Australia, and I'm also the educator for our department. I really enjoy my job, and one of the best parts is showing students the ropes. A few years back, I had a first-year radiology student on her first placement with me, and she was super keen to get stuck in round on recess, uh, resuscitation. So I just, I, I, I'm she guessing wanted that's, to
1: see some of that. Yeah, she wanted to see some happening. of that. Okay. So we
0: get a page for a trauma call and grab the X-ray machine and head over there. Just as we walk into recess, this area, the first thing we're greeted with is the ED perf- uh, team performing a lateral canthotomy on a severely injured patient. What's
1: a canthotomy? So
0: it's where um, there's facial trauma and you have to cut the eye- eyelid. I,
1: nope, don't want to release know. pressure Never mind. To prevent Stop. blindness. Mm-hmm.
0: That's what it is. (laughs) My student whispers, can I go to the loo? And and shuffles off. When I caught up with her about a half hour later, she apologized and sheepishly sheepishly said, is it always like that? And I reassured her that no, thankfully, that's not a common sight. (laughs) She was fantastic after that initial moment of terror she didn't pass out though well
2: yeah because that's that was a a
0: common thing that happens for people that's in fact that's how a lot of students realize they don't want to (laughs) go in certain areas of medicine
2: right
1: whatever makes you go vasovagal
0: the yeah you get the (laughs) vasovagal but i will say a lateral canthotomy is a um challenging procedure to watch if you've never seen something like that. Because yeah. people already have weird eyeball stuff. Have you ever seen a lateral canthotomy done? Yeah. Mark? And I'm grimacing yeah. because better are you than me, my friend. Like I, got, yeah, I, yes. there,
2: I I listen, I love what you do. I I, I know I couldn't <laughs> do it. And my first reaction was absolutely Kristen's that give give me, you know, give me the um the patient yeah. who's got septic shock in the ICU any day, I can manage them, but give me a lateral can of me and I'm going to call it doctor. And there's
0: a lot of, yeah. it's very vascular, the face and the eye. So you get a Lots lot of, of bleeding blood, when you yeah. do that. Okay. Yeah. So we have Jed. This is our second story. There was a guy I knew in the Navy. You know, this is going to be a good story. Yeah,
1: Just Let's from that beginning, buckle up. He
0: had <laughs> testicular cancer and had a prosthesis. The Navy is an interesting culture to work in. That's what he says. And this was on a submarine, which is a unique environment, even by Navy standards, and was all male at the time. The uniform at sea is just coveralls, which zip from the groin on up. This guy was known to occasionally unzip his coveralls, put his testicles on top of, if I remember correctly, the giant steel case of the main engines, which had a big... A bit bit of a wide ledge around waist height and take a hammer to his fake testicle for the purpose of freaking everyone out.
1: That's not where I thought that was going. I thought he was going (laughs) to zip him up, but he took it to a whole different level.
0: (laughs) This is a little Navy prank. Crushing your fake testicle with a hammer. You know, not a bad prank, to be honest.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's you go. I, he says hey, it worked
0: if you're gonna have testing i i if you are gonna have any kind of cancer you, you know having fun with it i think is always that's something right. that uh, we should support this is a
2: silver lining <laughs> i'm feeling so change i only have half a pancreas i can't pull any pranks like i have I no, no, no. Physical jokes
0: that's uh yeah, Sour gonna,
2: grapes. Sour can, grapes, man. yeah. brainstorm
0: something for yeah. you yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay maybe that'll be the the, the game next time is yes. come up with with cancer <laughs> pranks yes All right. Uh, Well, thank you for those stories. You can send us yours. Knock, knock, high at human-content.com. Mark, thank you so much for joining us. It's always a pleasure to talk with you. And uh, um, do you have something you want to promote? In fact, I would love to promote this as well. Uh, March is uh, Colon Cancer Awareness Month, right? So we're recording this now. It's in March. This will go out in in May. But uh, I want you to just let everyone know. what what should they know? What should the general public know about colon cancer?
2: Oh, you're very kind. Let me do this. And thank you for um, sharing your platform. So we know that colon cancer is shifting earlier in age of onset. And again, this is something no one really likes to think about or talk about, but just in the last couple of years, the guideline for when people should start screening the colon is not 50 anymore, it's 45. So my message is, if you are 45 years old, it is Very reasonable to talk to your doctor about what's the best way of doing this. And there's really two approaches, one of which is colonoscopy, which everyone is familiar with the fact that requires PrEP. You have to clean the colon before you can see the colon. That said, once the PrEP has happened, the easy part, actually, relatively speaking, is a doctor using a camera, a flexible camera, to look at your colon. And it's two for one. I like to say it's not just screening, it's prevention, because if the doctor finds a polyp, they remove the polyp. And there's very few tests of medicine that are quite so efficient. identifying and then getting rid of your issue. The other way you can do it, and I know this is lovely to talk about, but I have a feeling this is the right podcast to do it, (laughs) is to test your stool. So these days we have some pretty sophisticated home tests. So Will, you'll remember that one of the more uh, glamorous parts of medical training is Mm -hmm. you and I probably had to do plenty of uh, digital rectal exams. We had to put fingers in people's rectums. Turns out that's actually somewhat traumatic in, in every sense of the word. And what yes. I mean by that actually is it has the potential <laughs> to introduce even microscopic amounts of blood, just that, that digital trauma. Oh, gotcha. So we don't actually encourage testing that way as a routine anymore. The better way of doing it, and it sounds so weird at first, is to provide the patient with a home kit, which they complete in the privacy of their own bathroom and they mail off. Now here's the key. If that kit comes back showing blood or showing, uh, We're actually sophisticated enough now we can sometimes find pre-cancerous DNA in stool. Mm. That then essentially requires a follow-up colonoscopy. It's an incomplete screen. If we see there's something wrong in the stool, we're not just going to say, okay, come back in 10 years. In fact, stool testing is annual. But the the positive stool test has to be followed up with a colonoscopy. So thank you so much for letting me talk about this. And I I will say, maybe the last word is, this is all about screening it's a completely different story if you have symptoms. And again, no one wants to talk about this.
0: Right. Um,
2: but if you're having blood in your stool, it's very easy to be like, oh, that must be hemorrhoids. It's nothing to worry about. But unfortunately, it's not always quite that straightforward. So it's definitely worth bringing to the attention of your doctor. Um, for all the jokes that we make, um, you know, we will treat your encounter with complete confidentiality um, and make sure that you're well taken care of. And so uh, this is an important time to talk about colon cancer awareness is no longer for people 50 and up it's actually for 45, 45.
0: Yeah. okay Thank yeah you. that's not too far off i know for i'm for getting us.
1: uncomfortably <laughs> close uh
0: you know what i'm gonna get my colonoscopy and you're gonna live tweet it
1: <laughs> okay deal
0: that's what
1: i literally have the
2: same deal with my wife yeah
0: because yep. i'm getting that sweet sweet propofol um, I'm going to be out, and you're going to be watching my call on a, a tiny and little gonna screen. And I'm going to be telling
1: everybody about it. Yep,
0: that's right.
1: <laughs> well,
0: Mark, again, thanks so much for 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 being with us. And uh, yeah, it's oh, always so a pleasure good
2: to talk to you. Well, so you guys, I know it seems like I'm paying you lip service because I'm on your podcast. Thank you, legitimately, for what you do for uh, Will, for you, for humanizing doctors. Because you know, I shared that Google search earlier. It's actually terrifying to me that there are people out there with a serious illness like cancer who are almost as afraid of the physician as they are of the disease. And I realize that you have a tremendous amount of, uh, you know, talent that goes into your craft. But I want you to know that one of the real world impacts, I really mean this, is you are helping to uh, not undermine our image, but soften our image. And that means the world to me as a medical professional. So for me to you, thank you. And uh, Kristen, for you, um, you know, I saw my wife and frankly, my mother, um, sometimes with the best intention, doctors almost get sidelined. Like, you know, focus, understandably at the time was on me or my father, but that can't happen at the expense of completely forgetting about the caregiver. And I'm not saying anyone out there listening to this has to be, you know, performing medical procedures on their loved one at home. My wife is <laughs> an exception, as are you, uh, with Will. Um but no, thank you for what you've done because you know I, I've tweeted about this. I'll say it now on your platform. COVID was a case of you know, not realizing what you've got till it's gone. And during the really scary times of near quarantine, where my patients when they were in the hospital, they were not allowed to have visitors. Yeah, I realized not only are they isolated, I can't do my job as well. Like the the patients' friends and family are their therapeutic allies. And yes, you may not have a formal place in the medical record the way that the patient does, but we cannot forget about you guys. And in fact, we owe you a tremendous debt of gratitude. So again, from the bottom of my heart, um, thank you for what you've done. I am a huge believer, Uh as you know, of the co-survivor sort of movement and the attention you brought to that. Well, um you. and again I, I know this is kind of a turning into a love fest but it's one that <laughs> comments are in the most uh, genuine of places so thank you guys well, Oh thank very you much. appreciate thank that you. And, and
0: people can find you on twitter um and what's your what's your handle
2: oh it's extremely creative the, the, it's at the, mark lewis md there you uh, go easy to
0: remember <laughs> yeah that's good exactly. and thank you <laughs> and um uh, you also are working on a memoir Oh,
2: man, I am actually both terrified and and actually really glad that you asked me this. Because
0: <laughs> now I, you have to do now it. No, it's oh,
2: public. Yeah. So everyone that walks into <laughs> my office, I'll even, even t- turn my camera for a second. I've got this like beautiful mind situation going on where I've been scrawling notes Ooh. on this whiteboard <laughs> for like a couple years, and people literally think I'm having some sort of you know nervous breakdown. They're like, are you okay? <laughs> and I'm trying to turn this mess, which is in my own illegible handwriting, by the way, I'm trying to turn this into a book. And I'm so inspired by... Uh, people that have written medical memoirs. I'm inspired by my dad. He wrote one yeah. when mm-hmm. he was dealing with cancer, and so I better get pen to paper and finish mine. So, thank <laughs> well, you for luck. thank you for saying. And I, what's I his called? So his is actually a theology book called "Between Cross and Resurrection." To his enormous credit, he spends about ten pages out of four hundred and fifty something talking about himself because he didn't want to be the center of attention. But the fact that he wrote it on a typewriter late at night after chemo sessions was like that to me is my fuel and uh and so thank you for saying that and now will i gotta finish the book so thank you
0: there you go all right yeah well thanks again mark thanks appreciate it well that's our episode for today
1: yes Dr. Lewis, he is such a good human being and does a lot of really good things and in his practice. We didn't mention
0: this, but but my my mom has been going through cancer treatment, mm-hmm. and I've talked about this on social media a little bit. And uh, she's now friends with Mark, yes, and, and they they've been talking with each other. He's just a, a just a fantastic person, and yeah, um, really is. helped out our family quite a bit. So. Um, Definitely check him out on social media. Well, and we were just telling of... our
1: producer that your mom and his mom are now pen pals too. They are. Through all of this, they which are is really adorable. She, your mom lives in Houston, and his mom lives in Scotland, so it's a it's a That's long right. distance relationship. And my but... mom's
0: got a very. A quite thick uh, Texan accent yes so and so the, <laughs> between be the, interesting. between the Texan accent and the Scottish right it's probably a fun probably conversation no to listen them. to probably <laughs> no maybe for a future episode we just get the two of them to talk <gasps> to yeah, each other for bonus a bonus
1: episode <laughs> that would be hilarious
0: <laughs> well uh, thank you all also for the stories for your own stories and, um, and let us know what you thought of the episode and uh, what areas of medicine do you like to hear about? Because, uh, you know, I want to try to hit up every part of medicine and yeah. have different doctors from different specialties. And uh, so let us know uh, what you're looking for, what you what you like hearing, um, or what we haven't touched on that you want to hear more of. Yeah. There's lots of ways to hit us up. Uh, email us knock knock high at human content.com. Uh, we're on social media, pretty much everything Instagram, TikTok, uh, Twitter, YouTube. Uh, You can also hang out with our Human Content Podcast family on Instagram and TikTok at Pods. Shout out to all the great listeners leaving awesome feedback for us, all the reviews. We love it. If you subscribe and comment on your favorite podcasting app or on YouTube, we can give you a shout out. Like Spriggan on YouTube said, it's so cool that Lady Glockenflecken's grandpa invented the baby vacuum. (laughs) The
1: baby vacuum. The disposable. (laughs) We don't want
0: to give credit to the... Yeah. I think
1: there's probably a more technical term for it. It's the vacuum extractor. The vacuum, That's what it a, That's a, what it's called. a
0: type of vacuum extractor. Yes. But yes, baby vacuum works.
1: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he, right. He invented a, a specific, we don't have to get into it's... that, but yes, it is so cool.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and Spriggan says, uh, I had a vacuum assisted delivery just one month ago. And while my baby still had, has a knot on his head, I am grateful that we were able to avoid a forceps or a cesarean delivery. Thanks, grandpa.
1: Yeah, Thanks, grandpa. <laughs>
0: Full episodes of this podcast are up on YouTube, my YouTube channel at Glock and Flecken. We also have a Patreon, lots of cool perks, bonus episodes or react to things, medical shows, movies. Hang out with other members of this community. We're active there, uh, posting uh, videos and, and comments and, and all the things. Uh, And we have early ad-free episode access for you, interactive Q&A livestream events, a lot more, patreon.com slash Flecken, or go to Flecken.com. Speaking of Patreon community perks, new member shout-out to Leah D. Thank you, Leah. Welcome. Uh, Also, shout-out to the Jonathans, as always, Patrick, Lucia C., Sharon S., Omar, Edward K., Stephen G., Roskbox, Jonathan F., Marion W., Mr. Granddaddy, Caitlin C., Brianna L., Dr. J., Chaver W., Jonathan A and Leah D, Patreon Roulette time. This is uh, where we give a shout out to somebody in the emergency medicine tier of Patreon. So our general, please.
1: I can't do it. Just try it. I want to hear it. No, I have. I got dental work done (laughs) recently.
0: Shout out to Chris M for being a patron, and shout out to Kristen's dentist. We are your host, Will and Kristen Flannery, a.k.a. the Glock Special thanks to our guest today, Dr. Mark Lewis. Our executive producers are Will Flannery, Kristen Flannery, Aaron Corney, Rob Goldman, and Shanti Brooke. Editor and engineer is Jason Portizo, and our music is by Omar Binsvie. To learn about our Knock Knock Highs, program disclaimer, ethics, policy, submission, verification, licensing terms, and HIPAA release terms, you can go to glockandflecken.com or reach out to us at, Glock or at High at human-content.com with any questions, concerns, fears, hopes dreams, dreams or medical puns nagnakai is a human content production